You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Tactics of Unbelievers. I'm excited today because... uh, uh, it's, of course, baptism. Uh, we have a baptism service right after church, so very excited for that. We haven't had one, uh, I think, since pre-COVID and the lockdowns and whatnot, so this is an exciting time for our church always, and uh, I'm excited for the ladies who are going to be baptized. I brought uh, all my swimming gear, my flotation devices, just to make sure I, you know, make sure that they don't sink and, you know, whatever. Um, well, we are back in our Gospel of John series. We started uh, gospel, the chapter 9 of the Gospel of John last week. And as you recall, that was a story of the man who was healed, who, the man who was born blind but was healed by Jesus, this great miracle that Jesus performs in recreating his eyes from uh, a puddle of mud that he creates. And so uh, the next two weeks today and, and uh, next week we'll be discussing the aftermath of that miracle. John includes this portion in his gospel, this story in his gospel, for three reasons, at least from what we can tell. The first is that, again, it's to, it's to corroborate Jesus' claims as the Son of God, Christ's divinity. Again, John's thesis is John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And what better way to demonstrate Christ's divinity, Christ's identity as the Son of God than for him to demonstrate this extraordinary supernatural power to create sight from nothing. Right? Again, this man was born blind. It's not like his eyes were damaged as he was growing up. He was literally born with the inability to see. And here is Christ restoring or creating sight in this man. Secondly, this passage, this unique story of this this man being born blind, being healed by Jesus, and then now having this confrontation, as we just read, with the Pharisees, is included in John's gospel because it's meant to recall the origins of the first schism between uh, the the Jewish Christians and the Orthodox Jews. If if you see in our passage, after the parents are interviewed, John leaves sort of a commentary in brackets in verse 22. He says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This was the start of the persecution from Orthodox Jews towards Christians in the early church. We see more of that in Acts when the church is finally established and the apostles are going out on their own. But the decree, so to speak, to put, uh, to put Jewish Christians out of the synagogue and, and, and sort of the general animosity that started to cultivate towards Jewish Christians started here in this instance, in this story, at least the earliest record, record of it. And really, it's still active even today in Israel. Just the other day, I saw um, one of these uh, videos of a Christian in Jerusalem being, being uh, 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 mocked and, and uh, uh, heckled by, uh, unfortunately, Orthodox Jews um, uh, 
today, right, in, in our day and age. Um, so, so those are two reasons so far, right? It's to demonstrate that, again, Christ's divinity. Second is to, to point to the origins of this, this schism between Orthodox Jews and, and Jewish Christians. And finally, the final reason why I believe John includes this story in our passage is to give an example of willful unbelief and how unbelievers respond to the gospel as a result or uh, uh, with willful unbelief. See, the context as we've been talking about, uh, or we started last week, if you, call, if you recall, is that this chapter in John's gospel is connected to the two previous chapters, chapters 7 and 8, and the whole Feast of Booths story with Jesus. And we get some clues as to, to why that is. In verse 5, where passage that we just read, it said, as long as I am, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that is, of course, a callback to chapter 8, when Jesus gives his great I am statement, I am the light of the world. And, of course, Jesus gave that during the Feast of Booths, when, when this great procession in this festivity of the Jews had, had the temple priests uh, doing a parade of lights and, and candles to, to commemorate the, the pillar of fire in the wilderness. And so Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And now in chapter 9, he's saying, I am the light of the world while I'm still here. Then also, uh, we also see in verse 7, Jesus said to this blind man, this, this man born blind, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which, is, which means sin. Again, that pool of Siloam in Jerusalem was the pool in which the temple priests gathered water during the Feast of Booths to give a drink offering to God. So all of that to say it's still connected with chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 9 is still connected with chapter 7 and 8. And that's important because the underlying theme in these three chapters is the idea of truth. The idea of truth. All throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8, Jesus is declaring that he is the son of God. He's giving evidence to it. He's giving testimony to it. And the, the Jews, the, the religious elites, the Pharisees, completely reject these claims. And, and of course, some believe, and, 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 but multiple times it says that there is division among the Jewish elites, the Pharisees. And then from this discourse with the Jews and their unbelief and some who believe, we get this famous passage that we, we looked at a, a couple of weeks ago. John chapter 8, verse um, 31 to 32. Jesus said to the Jews who believed, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this idea of the truth, the truth being Christ's identity as the Son of God, His divinity, is what this entire passage or these entire three chapters is all about. The crowds were divided over it, those who believed it versus those who did not believe. And now in chapter 9, we see this conflict come full circle and come into practice. We notice very quickly that Jesus is actually not in the picture in this chapter. He is in the beginning of the chapter and then towards the end of the chapter, the beginning and the end. He's like Alpha and Mega, takes it seriously in this, in this chapter, right? But the main focus is really this man who was born blind and his encounter with the Pharisees and this, this, this conversation that happens with the, the temple, um, temple elites here. The main focus is on him and how they treat him because specifically of his unbelief and their unbelief. And from this, where it, where it becomes applicable to us is that we see how unbelievers often treat those who are part of the truth, who are, who are of the faith. 
We get the examples of the tactics that unbelievers use to intimidate, to discredit, to pressure believers and undermine the faith. Because as, as we mentioned, right, humanity in, 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 in its depravity, in its natural sinful state, are not simply ignorant of the truths of God, but they are actively suppressing, rejecting, opposing the, truth, the truths of God. And that opposition of the truth of God often means that it's bad news for believers, those who stand on the truths of God. And what we see from our, exa- from our passages, really examples of what we, we, can, we can or will or, or can, what we can expect uh, coming from unbelievers, what is happening to believers today. See, I, I, I love this quote that I keep uh, mentioning for the past few weeks, that the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened, it tells us what always happens. And the hope for us this morning is to unpack from our passage some of these tactics that unbelievers will use to pressure believers to renounce their faith, to to flee, to to compromise the truth. Tactics that we see even today. And the desire is that we are informed by the Word of God so that we are better equipped to handle, to face this persecution that comes as a result of being a follower of Christ. Because understand, God's people will experience persecution in this life. And some already are. Some already are experiencing in parts of the world. And from the trend of history and and what we see from Scripture, persecution starts with pressure. The societal pressure that we see in our passage Great, great, the, the great persecutions of the church didn't start at the, at the Roman Colosseum. It didn't start at the end of the sword. It started here in our passage with this social peer, this peer pressure that we see that the Pharisees are doing. And the hope, again, is to equip you brothers and sisters so that when we come across this pressure from our world, when that comes to us, we would be able to stand. That we would be able to, to know what will happen. And, and again, you know, Jesus later says in John chapter 15, the same book or the same book of the Bible, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Persecution is certainty. It is a certain thing for believers, followers of Christ. And I, I actually find it very interesting that this is the passage that we land on a day that we're doing baptisms. Because... You know, our dear sisters who are going to get baptized today, sorry, but this is what, what's in store for the followers of Christ, those who declare that they are believers to the world. This is the world's response to believers. But again, the hope for us with this sermon and the next uh, sermon is to prepare us to be able to handle that kind of pressure, that kind of persecution well, and, and to know what to do and to how, how to react, respond when those things come our way. So with all that uh, as sort of a precursor to what we're going to be talking, to, uh, talking about today, let's unpack our passage and, and see some of these tactics that we see from um, these, uh, these unbelievers. Let's start at verse 8 after the miracle takes place. It says in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. Can you imagine that? If your neighbors don't actually know how you look like, and they're like, is that him? No, I don't think that's him. He, that guy has, that guy can see. Uh, but it's interesting here, because in, in ancient times, 
people who were born with physical disabilities, like this man in our passage, were simply reduced to begging. And so their family and friends or even their neighbors would often bring them to the town square where they would just beg all day for their resources for whatever needs that they have. And so this is why these neighbors come, they, they, they come and, and, and ask these questions. I, I think this is the man that we've been bringing out, right? This is the guy who, who could not see, yet he now sees. Then again, in verse 9, the, the man answers, I am that man. So they said to him, then how were your, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. He's recalling this whole thing. Then verse 12, you said to the, uh, they said to the, this man, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, as, this, as he's clarifying this testimony, the, the people are confused. Clearly, it's a confusing uh, situation. The, the, the man that they brought out to the square was blind, and now he's coming back and he's able to see. So what do you do when you're confused? You go to someone who might know what's going on. And in this case, they go to the authorities on miracles, which is the Pharisees. So in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is, sinner, who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So coming to the Pharisees, there's again division amongst them. But from this, we see the first tactic that unbelievers will often use to pressure those who believe in the truth. From the, from the scene. And what we see is that unbeliever, unbelievers will dispose of common sense. Dispose of common sense. See, the people in the story seem to have more common sense than the Pharisees in the story. The Pharisees said, uh, Jesus is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And then later on in verse 24, they even outright called Jesus a sinner. Because, hey, you know, it's not the first time he broke the Sabbath law. And he, if you recall from chapter 5, he healed the, the paralytic man on the Sabbath as well. And, of course, Jesus was also claiming to be God. And so in the Pharisees' eyes, Jesus is just a sinner. He's not from God. But then the others who believed on the other side are saying, wait, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? How can a man who is... Who, who is a sinner, do such a, it, a, this grand of a miracle, this scope of a miracle. Again, a man was born blind. He was blind from birth. It was not a, a simple healing. His eyesight wasn't just restored or, or, or from being damaged. He was simply born without the ability to see. And Jesus, demonstrating the power of the Son of God, recreates eyes from mud. So the Jews, no, there, there's, it's not a possibility that a sinner could have or possess this kind of power. Not even a sinner who's possessed by the devil could have this kind of power. How could this man do such signs if he's a sinner? What the other, aisle, the other side of the aisle concludes. And so the conclusion that the Pharisees should have came to as well is that, well, if Jesus is doing the works that only God could do, clearly he's not a sinner. He must be from God. That's the logical conclusion of this story. But the Pharisees did not conclude this, but 
then again, willful unbelief disposes of common sense to maintain a lie. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Paul is saying all of, creation, all of creation cries out the existence of the Creator. From the complexity of design in the smallest organism to the grandest galaxies of the universe that are tied to, to, to observable laws and physics, and all of the cosmos screams the brilliance and beauty of our God. Yet in the willful unbelief of depraved man and sinful man, it says, Paul says in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul later says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And often, oftentimes this lie that, that, that unbelievers will, will try to propagate and protect is a lie of preference, a lie of comfort of permissibility. It's, it's a lie to keep their, their way of life, the, the, as Jesus calls it, the, the way that is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. That's what's happening in our passage. The Pharisees are disposing of common sense, what is reasonable, what is logical to preserve their culture, their way of thinking, their way of life. Because God forbid if they admit that maybe Jesus is not a sinner and actually connected to God, actually from God, then we would have to follow him. Then we have to change our ways. They have to submit to his authority, to his way of thinking, and, and, and admit that they were indeed sinners and needing of a Savior. I love the irony in in our passage, that the man born blind could see better than the Pharisees. And not just the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but we see this, this disposing of common sense even in our day and age, unfortunately. There's a saying that goes, uh, common sense is not so common anymore. We see more and more today how society is disposing of common sense, of reason, of logical thinking, just to be able to propagate or placate a way of life, to permit a way of life. For example, and I'm sure you know this, and you've heard these before, in Ontario, you must be at least 18 years old to get a tattoo, a permanent body-altering procedure, 18 years old. But a girl can get a mastectomy at the age of 16 to surgically remove her breasts. And children can get uh, puberty blockers as early as age 8, depending on what time or when puberty starts for them. And by the way, in British Columbia, they don't need parental consent. As long as doctors say, hey, this person is in the right mind of thinking, this child is in the right mind of thinking, they can apply for puberty blockers as early as age eight to stop them from going through puberty and, 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 and let them transition to a different gender. Children can't vote 
They can't buy alcohol. They can't buy. They can't get tattoos. All of which are permanently alter. That can all of which can permanently alter their life. But taking medicine, taking uh, procedures to permanently mutilate their God-given gender, the sooner the better, according to doctors. And the lack of common sense is not just in gender studies in our society, but it affects other schools of thought. Obviously, when it comes to the criticism about the Bible, secular scholars and historians will accept the writings of Socrates and Plato as more authentic, more believable than Scripture, despite having little to no surviving manuscripts dated to those authors, to those philosophers. Meanwhile, the Bible has hundreds of manuscripts that date back to the 1st and 2nd century during the time of the Apostles, but how can you believe the Bible, right? Or how about science? Scientists would rather accept that the universe is const- that the universe constructed itself through process of billions of years of unguided macroevolution. Despite seeing the evidence of intelligent design in every facet of life. Or how about this, right? There's a study done a couple of years ago, and maybe it's changed. Hopefully it has changed, but the most atheistic field in, in uh, the most atheistic field of study is not anthropologists, it's not biologists, it's actually mathematicians. See, I knew math was evil back in high school. Like, according to the study, most mathematicians are atheists, despite seeing Absolute formulas and patterns and order in numbers that can only come from the brilliant mind of a genius God. And then should believers speak the truth against these things, against the lack of common sense? We're called a bigot, a homophobe, ignorant, religious fanatic. We're made to look unintelligent simply because we presuppose a sovereign God behind the creation of the universe. And by the way, they did the same thing to this man born blind. At the end of the conversation here in verse 28, it says that, or towards the end of the conversation, it says in verse 28, they reviled him, meaning they hurled insults at him. And in verse 34, they called the blind man a sinner. And their desperate need to defend their way of thinking, their way of life, their sin, their autonomy from a holy God, unbelievers will call and, and label those, those who believe the truth names in an effort to ostracize with the hopes that calling them names would, would embarrass us and, and, and shame us and maybe silence and discredit us, pressure us to compromise the truth. It's what the Pharisees did in our passage, and it's what unbelievers do today. We know, we know, for example, about cancel culture. People are so afraid of being canceled these days that they give in to pressure. They apologize publicly. They change their opinion. Again, they compromise the truth. The topics may change, but the tactics remain the same. So how do we respond as believers to this kind of pressure, to these name-calling, to, to the disposing of, of, of common sense by unbelievers? How do we respond to this? Very simple. 
Fear God, not man. Fear God and not man. Jesus says to his disciples when he was sending them out to do mission work in his earth, during his earthly ministry, Matthew 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, not a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they, call, if they have called the master of the house of Beelzebub, how, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying, listen, they called me names, they will call you names. But, but don't fear them. There's a time coming when all will be revealed. Everything that I've been talking about will be, be shown and, and, and my glory will be revealed. The truth will be revealed. Every uh, time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But in the meantime, fear God and not men. And then you might be thinking, well, is that it? We just, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we just fear God and not men? Well, Jesus continues in that passage to comfort the hearts of the disciples, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. See, ultimately, our desire to remain in right standing with man, with the world, with unbelievers, it stems from our desire to be accepted be valued, our sense of self-worth. But Jesus says, listen, you are more valued by God himself. So what if the world calls you names, or rejects you, or cancels you, or ostracizes you? God never will. His value of you is all that should matter. Not what others think. Not what the world thinks. Not what unbelievers think. It's what God thinks of you. That's what should matter. Unbelievers will dispose of common sense. They will resort to name-calling and reviling the opposition, all for the sake of preserving a way of life, a way of thinking. Again, their autonomy to the standards, from the standards of a holy God. As we continue our passage, we also see another tactic that unbelievers will commonly use. Unbelievers, unbelievers will also deny the truth. Deny the truth. So after there's a division among the group there, the Pharisees say that Jesus is a sinner. Some of them say that, uh, no, he, he can't be a sinner. He has the power of God. How can he be a sinner? They go, so they go back to this man that was born blind. Look at verse 17 for a passage. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes. Like going back to this man because, hey, you, you experienced it. Like, what do you think of him? You interacted with this Jesus. What do you think of him? And I think there's a sense that they were hoping that this man born blind would say that Jesus was in fact a sinner. But what does the man say? He is a prophet. He is a prophet. In Orthodox 
in, in, in the Orthodox faith, the Orthodox Jewish faith, the concept of, of, of a man being equal with God is not a normal thing. And the closest thing that they could have probably perceived Jesus was, if, because he's able to do these signs and wonders, is that he is a prophet, like the prophets of the Old Testament performing these miracles. Yet despite this first-hand account, this, this experience or this testimony of this once blind man, they still don't believe him. It says in verse 18 of our passage, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents now of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Notice, notice how they're asking this question. You say, right? You say that he was born blind. Like, okay. But then how is it that he's seeing now? He's, they're implying that these parents were giving a false testimony or a false witness. And again, this is on top of, the, of, of three, three lines of witnesses already that these Pharisees have had. The neighbors knew that this man was born blind, but now can see. The man himself gave testimony, and now his parents are giving testimony. Verse 20, it says, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know, nor do we know how know who opened his eyes, ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So, again, these Pharisees keep on going, asking these questions, even though they have been given sufficient evidence of this miracle actually taking place. The Pharisees reject every piece of evidence that point to Jesus not being a sinner, but actually being God. And again, the, this, the, this questioning of, of the parents also, see, also shows how they are completely denying or even compromising or, 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 or disregarding the truth. You say he was born blind. The idea is that, in, that every, every fiber in an unbeliever, in their nature, in their will, seeks to suppress the truth of God. We see this today as well. Despite the evidence of God's existence and genius visible in all of creation, as we've talked about, despite the testimony of millions upon billions of Christians, believers, throughout many generations, unbelievers will still deny the truth. Have you ever heard an unbeliever say, if only God showed up, if only God proved himself, shows up right now, then then I'll believe he's real. No, that's untrue. Because the gospel is, the gospels are evidence of God showing up in human form, the person of Jesus Christ, performing these great miracles, great signs and wonders, yet these people still reject him. They still did not believe. He's similar to what we've seen already in, in this gospel John is giving an illustration that at the end of the day, sinners are spiritually blind and cannot come to the knowledge of the truth of God unless God himself opens their eyes. That's what, what, what John is getting at here. Despite all the evidence given to, to these Pharisees, despite the miracles given to man, unless God himself opens their eyes, draws them near, they will not believe. 
John chapter 6, verse 44, he says this, or Jesus himself says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does that mean for us believers? Well, what it means for us is that we have to understand that there are unbelievers that we will encounter, that despite the, the, the amount of evidence that we give to them, despite how convincing our arguments are, despite how passionate and diligent we are in sharing the gospel, they will not repent and come to Christ. It's an unfortunate truth, sad reality of the sinful world that we live in, but in in the hardness of their heart, they refuse God unless God opens their heart. Unless God is the one who calls them even should they face God face to face at the end of their life, the Bible again says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the next life. Meaning they will still rile against God. They will still, they will still rage and, and refuse God. Yet despite this truth, we brothers and sisters must continue to share the gospel to those around Because the reality is we can never fully know who the Father has drawn to himself. We can never fully know who God is calling to himself and who he has not. That's for him to know and that's for him to decide. But our call is not to convince, it's not to save people. Our call is to simply obey and pray. Pray that that those that we bring the gospel to will have good soil for hearts and will receive it joyfully. The, 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 The seed of the gospel will be planted deep and bear the fruit of salvation. And understand that we go with confidence sharing the gospel because God is sovereign. Because we trust and know, according to Scripture, that He can turn even the most hardest of hearts towards Himself. That He can turn even a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That's why we go and share the gospel. With that hope. Though unbelievers will deny the truth, we must faithfully present the truth anyway. That's our responsibility as a church. It's not, it's not to figure out who's saved, who's not saved, who's elect, who's not elect. Simply go and make disciples, share the gospel. The last tactic we see in, uh, in our passage that unbelievers commonly use, and pretty evident in our passage, Unbeliever, unbelievers will demand compliance. They will demand compliance. So as we saw the parents that were brought, this blind man or this once blind man was very reluctant to answer. And John gives a reason as to why that is. They were reluctant to answer the Pharisees. It says in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
Parents were so afraid that they were willing to even just abandon their son to answer the, these Jewish elites. So the Pharisees go back to the man. This is interesting. Uh, verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been, been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What were they expecting from this? They again wanted this man to, that was born blind to confess that, yep, Jesus was in fact a sinner. And they're pressuring him to say that. But I love what he says in response. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This man didn't know what really happened to him, how it all happened, how Jesus did this miracle. He only knew Jesus' name in passing. This man didn't know the doctrines of grace or whatever it is. But what he did know, he was blind, and now he sees. He was blind, and now he sees. That's what he clung to. That's what he was sure of. That's the truth that he knew. That's his testimony. And this is why our testimony is so important as well. It's why every week in, in, in every sermon, I try to, to remind us of the joy of our salvation, why, why it's important in our effort to share the gospel, our, our testimony must come alongside of it. Why we must be witnesses of God's goodness and grace. Because despite the insults thrown at us, despite the rejection, despite the threats, despite the aggression from unbelievers, what we, what they cannot take away from us is our experience with God. What they cannot take away from us is our testimony of what God has done in our life. I was blind, but now I see. How do you go back from that? How do you refute that? But that testimony of this blind man in the midst of this, this aggression towards his faith, this demand for compliance, that's what he clung to at the end of the day. And that's what we cling to as well. I was a, a raging alcoholic. I was an angry, I had anger management issues. I was, I was partying all the time. I was depressed and lonely. I was suicidal and fearful. I was sexually perverse. I was prideful and selfish. I was rebellious, an insolent opponent of a holy God. But now, thanks be to God, I see. I'm different. I'm new. Everyone has a testimony. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as this man in this passage, or it doesn't have to be the complete opposite of, of, of who you were in the past and now you're completely different. Your story is significant to your testimony, but you have to understand that your, your, your experience, your life change is not the whole of your testimony. What our testimony, what our witness ought to communicate to the lost. It's not how good we are now, how better we are now, but how good God is. How gracious God is. How he took us unworthy sinners, depraved sinners, rebellious sinners, and out of his grace and love, changed us, transformed us, 
renewed us. He gave us a different purpose in life, different motivations. All of it is meant to point to God's grace. Jesus did not have to heal this man born blind. Yet, just by passing, just by seeing him, Jesus heals this man. Can you imagine the sentiment that this guy had? I'm sure there was tons of other blind people in the square that day. Yet here's a man born blind, and Jesus comes to him, sees him, and gives him sight. Not because he deserved it, not because he begged better, not because he was the, like, the best-looking blind person on the street. Simply out of his grace. And it's, it's, it's the same for our story. We have this great testimony of God working in our lives, not because we've done anything good, but, that's, but because God is good and he's gracious. If you want to stand the pressure of society as it attacks all biblical truths, recall to mind not just what God has done for you, but recall to mind his grace that came to us when we did not deserve it. What joy, what, what, what overwhelming joy there is in that. And for those of us in this room who have yet to experience that grace, who have yet to receive that grace, let today be the day. Let today be the day where your, that testimony, that witness of yours, takes that turn. I was blind, but now I see. That's why Christ came. Again, he came to be the light of the world, to bring people out of darkness into the marvelous light of God. He died on the cross, rose from the grave, so that we would have an escape from our sin and the punishment of our sin, and so that we can have a right relationship with God. You can experience that today if you have not. Brothers and sisters, regardless of what the world brings our way, what pressures, what ridicule, what mockery the world brings, I encourage you all, stand firm in the faith. Recall to mind the state in which God has saved you from. Recall to mind the sweet, sweet, amazing grace that saved a wretch like us who were once lost but now and found we're once blind, but now we see. Let's pray. Oh, holy God, we, as we have discussed in your word this morning, the unbelieving world rejects your truth, ridicules your truth, suppresses your truth, and therefore, because we, as a church, are meant to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, your truth, we can expect that rejection, that persecution, that pressure to conform come our way. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you'd prepare your people, that you'd give us the boldness and the courage to stand for what is truth, what is right according to your standards, 
and that we would live a life that is worthy of the gospel that has saved us. A life that proclaims a testimony of how you have brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, I thank you. On behalf of your children, I thank you, O God, for the grace that you have lavished us with. For despite us not having done any good, despite us not having done anything to please you, out of your great love, out of your grace and mercy towards us, you chose to die for us. You chose to save us. You chose to bring us sight where we were blind. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us recall the joy of our salvation. That we might be satisfied and content, O oh Lord, in how you see us, in our identity with you. So that regardless of what the world says about us, regardless of the names that they call us, we might still stand. And that we might persevere and endure. I pray that you would help the brother, that you'd help the sister, oh God, who is under immense pressure from the world, from family and friends, to conform, to compromise the truth that you'd bolster their spirits, oh God. you give them courage to stand and proclaim your gospel to the lost. To be an ambassador, to be an example of the life change that only happens in you. Give your people boldness, oh God. Give your people courage. We pray these things in Jesus, your matchless name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.